Uh, well, good morning. My name's Jeffrey Lynn. I'm one of the staff here. Um, but I have my welcome uh, to that of Stephen's before. It's great to have you with us here today. Uh, we're going to turn to this part in our service to the main uh, focus for us today, which is in the hearing and the reflect meditating on God's Word. So I'm going to ask you please to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 11, uh, which you will find on page 92. Um, as we prepare to begin, uh, you can tell from my voice I'm just getting over a cold at the moment. I'm quite fine, but uh, I have been coughing a little bit, so I have a handheld mic rather than the headset mic, so if I cough, I don't cough in the mic and make it all really uncomfortable for you all. But um, uh, it does mean that uh, I'll just keep a little bit of distance from you today. It means, sadly, I won't join you at the Passover lamb lunch, which I'm very disappointed about, but thank you to those who are serving us in that way. Do stick around afterwards if you can. Uh, for I, I do this often. It will be sunny, um, I, I promise you, by then, and if it's not, well, too bad. Um, so uh, we are going to pick up in just a moment. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll spend some time in God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it's been written for us and for our salvation uh, today, as we come to this pivotal moment in the way in which you have acted in world history, please show us how it continues to shape us even today for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you take out your leaflet, you'll see on the top left, uh, here's a summary of what we're covering today, the story so far in this series in Exodus. Uh, God's plan to bless Abraham and all nations through him means that you and I, we belong to a bigger and better story. It's one about how God never forgets his promises he even uses weak vessels to achieve his purposes. For this is a God who is sovereign over his world. His will will be done, even as we make real choices and are responsible for our actions. Now, you'll recall last week we saw Moses perform no less than 10 signs and wonders to try to convince Pharaoh to release God's people, and yet the king of Egypt stubbornly refuses. I I suggested, actually, that the first nine plagues should be renamed as the first nine warnings because each one of them uh, speaks to God's patience and mercy, which, sadly, Pharaoh rejected. It means that this week we come to God's final and great intervention in the Passover, the tenth plague. Uh, this is the most significant night in Israel's history as God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and they begin their long journey to the promised land, one that will take them 40 years. Today, we witness the birth of a new nation, one whose king is God himself. And what we're going to do is feel the drama as it unfolds in four short readings, uh, the first of which is Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 8, which Ali is going to bring for us. Please follow along. Good morning, everyone. As Jeff said, uh, we're beginning to read uh, in Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 to 8. If you're using the Pew Bibles, just from the row in front of you, um, that's on page 92. Exodus 11, verses 1 to 8. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, 
and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Uh, if you look at your leaflet, you'll see on the left-hand side, scene one, God's final judgment on Egypt. Uh, we've reached the last and most terrible plague. Uh, after nine awful calamities, this is the most damning of all. Exodus chapter 11, verse 5, verse 5. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. At midnight, every firstborn son throughout the whole land will die, animal and human, from the least servant all the way to the palace. Even Pharaoh's own son. And there is nothing more valuable to a king than his heir. If all of this seems horrific, well, it is. But it's also appropriate for two reasons. Firstly, we've seen Pharaoh refuse to heed the warnings of nine earlier plagues. He had so many opportunities to stand down, but he refused. And the second reason why it's appropriate is because, you'll recall, back where the story began in chapter 1, the Egyptians had tried to exterminate all the Hebrew baby boys. In a sense, you could say this is entirely proportionate that they are just getting what they deserved. God's final judgment will be terrible for the Egyptians. But at the same time, God's people will be spared. Uh, we think of how back in chapter 4, there on your handout, chapter 4, God declared, Israel is my firstborn son. And so by verses 6 and 7 we contrast the wailing that will be heard throughout Egypt with the silence amongst the Israelites because nothing's going to happen to them. It's as if they will sleep through everything. As a result, Exodus chapter 11, verse 7, look with me, verse 7, then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, uh, even though, as we've seen there on your handout, it's not like Israel was any better or more deserving. So, as God's final judgment falls on Egypt, we're going to see just how complete his rescue of Israel will be. Uh, verse 2. Verse 2, tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. 
as the slaves leave, they are to brazenly ask their Egyptian neighbours for articles of silver and gold. Because God is not just rescuing his people from slavery with only the clothes on their backs. God has saved them for something so much more spectacular that's still to come in the promised land. And here's a hint of the magnificent blessing that awaits his people. Of course, the question at this point is, how are God's people going to be spared the judgment that's about to fall on Egypt? Well, to answer that question, we're going to skip ahead to our next reading, thanks, Ali, to Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. Exodus chapter 12, 1 through 13. That's also on page 92, if you're following along. So starting at verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. This is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Okay, well, on your handout, scene two, God's protection of his people. Uh, you'll notice that uh, from verse two in chapter 12 that uh, this night is so important that it's going to mark the start of the Hebrew calendar. Uh, you might say, time starts now for Israel or the life of the nation begins today. This is to be the first month of their year. Because what we're going to see is that at the very moment God's judgment falls on Egypt for her cruel mistreatment of Israel, God simultaneously rescues his people. That is, we're going to see two sides of the same coin uh, in just a moment. Well, what are the Israelites to do? There on your handout, there's three things. Uh, what are they to do to avoid the terrible judgment that's about to strike the land of Egypt? Three things. Firstly, they are to take a lamb, take a lamb, verses 3 through 5. 
uh, an animal, uh, not too big, not too small. One judged so that there are no leftovers and no shortages. Uh, I presume it's meant to represent that it is perfectly sufficient in every way for each household. And you'll see in verse 5, it's the kind of lamb, uh, it's a year-old male without defect, a year-old male without defect, that is a prized animal, because a sacrifice has to be costly for it to be an effective substitute. A sacrifice has to be costly for it to be an effective substitute. So each house in the Israelite community, take a lamb, secondly, they're to kill it and then put blood on the sides and tops of the door frames. Uh, verses 6 and 7 and then verses 12 and 13. The lamb's blood is painted on the door frame as a sign so that God quite literally passes over that house. And why? Well, verses 12 and 13 are explicit. It's because blood has already been shed. A lamb dies in the place of your son so that no one else need die that night. Go to verses 12 and 13, just to see something of the significance of what's taking place. Hebrew, uh, Exodus 12, verse 12. On that same night, I'll pass through Egypt, strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. God is saying that what's taking place on this day is something with cosmic ramifications. It is a dangerous time for all living beings, but God protects his people. You recall the last week, we tried to unwrap a little more of that tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Uh, we saw that particularly in the way in which Pharaoh's heart was hard or hardened or God hardened his heart. The same tension applies here to the Israelites. Clearly, God is the one who saves them. But each household must also choose to grab hold of that salvation by painting their door frames in blood. And I just want to encourage you and remind you once again, this little blue card on the seats in front of you or around you, they're a reminder of this Thursday night. We have a deep dive night as we look into this whole idea of God's sovereignty and human responsibility uh, with Dr. Luke Wisely from the Bible College of South Australia, Old Testament scholar. He'll be joining us to help us think through these passages. So if you're able to come, uh, please do join us on Thursday night for a deep dive. What are the Israelites to do to, do to be spared this judgment? Take a lamb, put its blood on the sides and tops of the door frames. Thirdly and finally, there on your handout, they are to eat the meal in haste. They are to eat the meal in haste, verses 8 through 11. I take it that if painting your door frames in blood showed that you wanted God's protection, to eat your meal in haste said you were convinced that his deliverance was coming now, that you're ready to go tonight. Now, that's the reason why I think the meal was so laden with symbolism. Did you notice some of the things there about the meal? No yeast for the bread. Uh, that is, you don't give it time to rise because you might have to leave at a moment's notice. Uh, you're meant to sit there with your cloak tucked into your belt. 
I thought about that. So you know when you come in at night time and you take your coat off because you're not going out again? Not now. You need to be ready in case the warning comes. Your sandals are still on your feet. I apologise for all the Asians who are twitching at this point about not taking their shoes off at the door. But, you know, you've got to be ready to go. In fact, you have your staff in your hand, even as you're trying to eat the meal. So you've got flatbread and bits of meat you're shoving in your mouth, holding the staff. Why? Because it all says, I'm ready at a moment's notice when God's deliverance comes. So what happens? Jump ahead with me. Exodus chapter 12, third reading, verse 29 through 42. Exodus 12, 29 through 42. Exodus 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people also went up with them and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelites' people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt... On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. Well, on your handout, down the left-hand side near the bottom, scene three, God judges Egypt and delivers his people. Uh, After all that preparation, in verses 29 and 30, judgment falls swiftly on Egypt. Now, without dwelling on it, uh, the text is almost clinical In its matter-of-fact discussion, uh, it is total and universal. Every person in Egypt, from the highest to lowest, every animal throughout the land, no one, no thing escapes. There is not a single household without death this night. Except amongst the Israelites. Because God has passed over his people even as judgment falls on the land. 
So in verses 31 through 36, we see that Israel is saved. And Israel is saved exactly in the way in which God had predicted, because he's always faithful to his promises. Just a few things to note in verses 31 through 36. Uh, Firstly, in verse 31... Uh, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron, it's the middle of the night, you notice there, verse 31, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. That's exactly what God had told Moses to ask for when he first commissioned him at the not burning bush back in chapter 3. And now it's finally happening. Uh, you notice also that uh, verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. Now, just bear in mind what time of day it is. It's after midnight, but it's still night, so it's before dawn. The, Israelite, the Egyptians just want the Israelites gone from their country now. And so we're told in verse 34 that the Israelites did as Moses instructed. Um, Sorry, verse 34, people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs and wrapped in clothing. One of the really interesting things about this whole episode is that there's, in some ways, an almost unhealthy obsession with yeast, it seems to me. You notice how often it comes up? I was really intrigued by this. So um, this week I rang and spoke to one of our 6PMers who happens to be a baker. Turns out she also has an unhealthy obsession with yeast because uh, she really carried on about it. I asked her, why do you think this was so significant that there was no yeast in the dough even? And she had actually this pretty simple answer. It'd be a lot less bulky to have to carry over a long distance, which is what they're getting ready for. And so finally, verse 36, we're told, they plundered the Egyptians. They plundered the Egyptians. Isn't that a lovely phrase? These slaves have plundered the mightiest superpower in the world. It describes the totality of their deliverance, one that has never been seen before and will never be repeated again in world history. This is an entire nation liberated from slavery and willingly blessed by their captors as they depart. God judges Egypt, but he delivers his people. Let me pause and make two theological reflections at this point. They're both printed there for you on your handout. Two brief theological reflections. Firstly, when God saves his people, it is always in the context of judgment. When God saves his people, it is always in the context of judgment. I talked earlier about how God's judgment of Egypt and God's deliverance of Israel, they are two sides of the same coin. Now, to try and illustrate, and to be honest, this has been a heavy going. This will lighten the mood a bit. There should be a slide on screen behind me. Slide on screen, please. Okay. Now, most of you know about the rabbit duck, right? Uh, Or if you don't, this is going to be a very distressing experience for you. Uh, Can you see a rabbit? A rabbit that's um, facing right or a duck that's looking left? Hmm. Sorry if you can't. This is going to bug you for the rest of the day. Too bad. 
the Passover event that we're seeing here in Exodus, it's one event seen from two different perspectives. For his enemies, God's judgment is very bad. But for his people, after a century of suffering, God's judgment is a wonderful relief. When God saves his people, it is always in the context of judgment. Second theological reflection, there on your handout. What saves us is not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith. What saves us is not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith. Let me try and illustrate, but this time by asking you to imagine. Imagine, here's what I'd like you to imagine. You remember Stephen who was up here before? I'd like you to try and imagine that Stephen and I are Jewish neighbours on the night of the first Passover in Egypt. It requires a bit of imagination, but uh, just imagine we're both Jewish neighbours. Each of us have children, each of us has a firstborn son. Imagine that we meet outside the front of our house uh, to paint our door frames in blood, and that what happens is that I happen to mention to Stephen that I'm actually feeling pretty nervous about my son, about Matthew. Because I've seen God's power in the plagues. So will a, lamb, will a bit of lamb's blood splashed around really protect my firstborn? I say to him, do you think I've used enough blood? Have I covered all the spots that it needs to be on? The thing is, Stephen, being Stephen... He's much more faithful than I am. So he says to me, look, Jeff, don't worry. Matthew, don't worry. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, he loves us. And he's always done what's right by us. And he always keeps his promises. And he's never let us down before. So why would we start doubting him now? Trust him. It'll be okay. So we both go inside and we wait. And night falls and we count down slowly to midnight. And what happens? Well, the next day, both of our firstborn sons have been spared. Because the grounds of our assurance is not how do I feel about it or how confident am I or how godly have I been. The grounds of my assurance lie simply in God's promises to deliver us. What saves us is not the strength of our faith but the object of that faith. Assurance lies not in how we feel about our salvation from day to day, in all the ups and downs. It lies solely in what God says is always true. And in fact, in just a moment, we're going to skip ahead several thousand years to see God's greatest deliverance and redemption that culminates with Jesus Christ. Before we do... On your handout, verses 37 through 42, the last part of the reading, they remind us that the next chapter in God's bigger and better story is about to begin. 
You recall God's promises to Abraham back in Genesis 12 of a nation, a land and a blessing? Well, now we discover this nation of 600,000 men plus women and children, they are leaving showered with blessings even from their enemies as they make their way to a land flowing with milk and honey. And as they set off on this journey, they are therefore never to forget this monumentous occasion at the birth of their new nation. Look at verse 42, end of chapter 12, verse 42. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honour the Lord for the generations to come. So we come to our third, our fourth and final reading, chapter 13, verses 1 through 16. Chapter 13, starting at verse 1, and that's on page 95. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The firstborn offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips." For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb, and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. If you look at your leaflet on the right-hand side, you'll see we've come to the epilogue, which I've called Remembering Our Redemption. Remembering Our Redemption. Now, this passage in Exodus 13 sets out two ways that God's people are to remember their redemption. They're there on your handout. Firstly, 
they are to consecrate the firstborn, uh, both people and animals, to God. They are to consecrate the firstborn. The idea here seems to be that, well, everything is the Lord's already. Uh, he made everything. But now the Israelite firstborn are doubly so. They doubly belong to God. Every firstborn animal and person amongst the Israelites belongs to God and so must either be sacrificed or explicitly bought back, redeemed. And you'll see in that passage that the redemption price, it's a reminder that our deliverance is always costly. Our deliverance is always costly. Now, clearly, this is something that they are to do not to earn God's favour, but simply because he has so kindly granted it. And the second thing that the Israelites are to do to remember their redemption, firstly, consecrate the firstborn, the second is to repeat the Passover ceremony annually. Repeat the Passover ceremony annually. That's what verses 1 through 10 are talking about. And there's more detailed provisions. You'll see a reference there on your handout to Numbers chapter 9. What both of these two requirements mean is they emphasise the importance of remembering. The importance of remembering, both in the ceremony and in the consecration of the firstborn. In fact, come with me to the end of the passage, chapter 13, verse 16. Verse 16. The effect is, it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. It will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Uh, a sign on your hand, a symbol on your forehead. This remembrance is to be quite literally in your face, uh, as much as a tattoo on your forehead, or this would be a little bit less dramatic, but probably equally effective. You know when people write notes to themselves on the back of their hands in pen so that they never forget? The thing is, centuries later, the Jews were still repeating this ceremony each year, the first month in their calendar. And they kept doing it time and time again so they wouldn't forget until a young rabbi from Nazareth reinterprets and fulfills this meal and brings it to its ultimate and intended finale. That's because you and I, we have always belonged to a bigger and better story. We've always been looking forward to a better day, a better sacrifice, one with a better result. John chapter 1, printed there on your handout. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And a little later in 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul writes, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. In this man's death, we are saved not from the horror of slavery, but from the awful penalty of our sin. Let's play the imagine if game again. This time I want you to imagine that Stephen and I, now imagine that we are disciples of this Jesus on the night before he dies. We've just shared a meal together 
And he's told us that his blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. How do you think we're feeling? Nervous? Anxious? Wondering what's going to happen to him or what's going to happen to us? Will everything that this Jesus has promised, will it come to fruition when so much is hanging in the balance? And as we wonder, we look around and we see our colleagues, some of whom it seems were convinced, like the woman who had just anointed Jesus with oil in preparation for his death. Others, of course, far less so. We see Judas. We see Peter, who will lose his nerve in just a few short hours. And we know that none of us deserves what we're about to get. None of us are worthy. In fact, the 12 of us have just had a petty squabble about who's the greatest of us. And we know that none of us is going to be fully transformed and perfectly sanctified even after he's died and risen again. So we watch and we wait and we stumble. And despite the best of our intentions, even afterwards we continue to fall. And it's only with hindsight that we eventually grasp what Peter finally worked out. It doesn't matter about how we feel about our salvation from day to day. It doesn't matter how faithful we will or will not be. Because our redemption comes through him. And what saves us is not the strength of our faith. It's the object of our faith. It is the precious blood of Christ. Look with me at how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1, printed there on your handout. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Can you feel the magnitude of what Peter is saying here? He's saying that our redemption is paid not by the blood of an animal. It's paid not with the treasured things of this world like silver and gold that will perish, spoil and fade. Our redemption is paid with something infinitely more valuable and therefore infinitely more powerful. It is paid with the precious blood of Christ. And that means our assurance is rock solid. Nothing in all of creation, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, 
neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And now that he's done all that for us, all that remains is for us to look forward to our final redemption. Today, I say to you, brothers and sisters, look up. Look up. God's firstborn son, our eldest sibling, he is nearly here. If you have been struggling this week, I want to urge you, stand firm. Wait just a little longer because in the grand scheme of God's bigger and better story, we are almost there. And can I say to you, if you're here today as someone who has never before reached out to Jesus, then come and join us. Join us as we remember once again what he has done for us. Join us as we gather around the Lord's table and simply say, thank you, Jesus. Let me lead us in prayer. I'm going to pray these words from the great German theologian Martin Luther. Hear the true paschal lamb we see, whom God so freely gave us. He died on the accursed tree, so strong his love to save us. See, his blood doth mark our door. Death, faith points to it, death passes over, and Satan cannot harm us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen.